We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We will continue in our study of this epistle and also continue in our detour that we have taken as well. As you know, in the first few verses of this passage that we're studying, we come up against the doctrine of sovereign grace, the doctrine of election. And I had to make a decision this week about, um, I hope I didn't make promises, but I had planned last week on taking a one-week detour to talk about the doctrines of sovereign grace or, or uh, um, uh, Calvinism or TULIP or whatever you want to call it as relates to this passage because if you're ever going to look at these issues, it ought to be in the context of going through a text and that's where we've come where the doctrine of election and God's choosing is so obviously and prevalently spelled out here in verses 3 to 6. Well, I talked to the staff and talked to the elders, and what I thought was going to be, please don't judge me, uh, a one-week detour is going to be a five-week detour. Um, and I, I, I hope it's only going to be a five-week detour um, because these are such important themes and doctrines. And this is the time in the life of our church and in the study of this text when we ought to stop and pay attention to them. Let me read this passage so that you have it in your minds. Ephesians chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Every generation faces its own theological challenges and confronts errors that must be identified and corrected. That's been the case since the first generation of the church. Just read Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council where the very first generation began to correct theological divergences. Our generation is no different. Over the past four decades of my own ministry, I've had a front row seat to a variety of cyclical changes and challenges that come in and around and through the church. But there is one pervasive notion a mindset, a worldview that seems to constantly grip people. It grabs their minds all the time when it comes to salvation. Here's the mindset. Men and women, young and old, believe they can be saved anytime they're ready, anytime that suits them, and they believe that their salvation can occur whenever and however they please and purpose. Is this true? Can a person truly be in control of their acceptance by God whenever and wherever and however the individual chooses? Well, let's return to that little phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 that has kind of governed our thinking over the previous weeks. 
where Paul just says to the Corinthians, by God's doing, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. That is so simple. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Said another way, by God's doing, you are saved. As I said last week, I am asked all the time, countless times, Rick, are you a Calvinist? Is Mission Road a Calvinistic church? And my answer is always the same. What what do you mean when you ask that question? How do you define Calvinist? No, we don't baptize babies and no, we don't believe in a, in a, 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 a millennium that's already begun now, which Calvin did, but we do hold to what are called the doctrines of grace, which some people rephrase as Calvinism. It comes from this acrostic of tulip, Right? T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. That's one historical way of understanding these doctrines. I I prefer the designation rather than tulip or rather than Calvinism, doctrines of grace. Grace is that incomparable attribute of God that gives people who don't deserve kindness kindness it gives us what we don't deserve they are doctrines of his salvation grace his sovereign grace they give him the glory and prerogative for saving sinners like you and me so we broke down our little topical study that we've taken a cue from and looking at the spiritual blessing of election and God's choosing that Paul outlines in in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 And we said we're going to pull the car over and talk about these five doctrines of grace. Five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's sovereign salvation. These are doctrines that are not intended to separate, divide, or confuse. These are doctrines that are actually intended to give comfort and praise and joy and security. Let me review where we got to last week and then we'll briefly, because of our abbreviated time today, look at our second one today. Total inability. Now, this is called in the Calvinistic scheme total depravity. Now, the reason I like total inability better than total depravity is very simple. Total depravity is true. We are depraved in our mind, in our will, in our conscience. Our, all of our being totally is touched and stained by depravity. But not everyone is as depraved as they could be. Not everyone acts totally depraved not everyone turns into Saddam Hussein or or Hitler but we still have the seeds and residents in our heart to be those kind of people at any time really the doctrine refers to total inability total inability for one to save themselves total inability to reach out to God this goes all the way back to Adam our first parent He passed on to his children the inclination to sin, a depraved nature, a a sinful fallen state, a rebellion against God just as he did toes and feet and arms and legs and fingers. The guilt of sin, corruption of sin, inclination to sin were transmitted to all Adam's progeny including you and me. Consequently, every human ever born except Jesus Christ inherited the same radical fallenness, the same radical depravity, but mostly the same total inability to save themselves and to cure their sin problem before God. Let me remind you of 
Isaiah chapter one, verses four to six, where he says the whole body, the whole soul, the whole mind, the whole will is sick. From the top of the head to the sole of the feet, we have nothing in us that's righteous. Romans three, verse 10. Listen to these comprehensive words. Paul quoting and stitching some psalms together says, there is none, none, no exception, none righteous, not even one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And if that's not bad enough, talking about the comprehensive nature, Paul actually goes a step further and says, and you were, before you were a Christian, dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. So the point of total inability should be nuanced to include, excuse me, total depravity should be nuanced to include inability. Romans 5, verse 6, we were helpless. We were ungodly. Verse 8, we were sinners. And verse 10, we were enemies. Absolutely alienated from God. This doctrine then, total inability, means that our minds, our hearts, our wills, are completely pervaded by and stained with sin. Even our good deeds have a selfish tone to them. It means, listen, this is important. It means more than the reality that man will not come to God in faith and obedience. It actually means that man cannot come to faith in God because he's spiritually dead. That's why Jesus describes the unsaved coming to faith in himself as being born again. So we are truly in a state of total inability to come to God. And it puts us in a bad way. That's important even to review, not because of last week, but because you cannot understand the next point without it. Secondly, electing choice, a second doctrinal conviction that provides security for those of us who know Christ. Electing choice. In other words, God's prerogative to save. This is called in the tulip um, uh, designation, unconditional election. I like electing choice, God's prerogative to save. There's divine logic here. Indeed, If man is as bad and in as much spiritual trouble as the biblical doctrine of total inability indicate, then salvation must originate with God. Since no one seeks God, not even one, and since we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then God must be the one to reach out to us, for us, with us, to offer us undeserved salvation and save us. And as we've studied in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, that's exactly what he does. The first step in his saving work is his determination to save us. That's what election refers to. He elected us. Now, back to the text that launched us onto the study. Look back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as, I don't know if you underline things in your Bible, but this is an underlinable phrase. He chose us. 
When? Before the foundation of the world. That's important. Before we ever made a choice, he chose us. That we would be holy and blameless before him. He's our audience. And then in verse five, you see that last phrase in verse four goes with the verse five. In love, he predestined us. This is simply the doctrine of God's choosing, God's election. And what makes this doctrine so sweet is what the the, um, uh, early men who pushed back against the remonstrance, go back to listen last week if you want to know what that is, the Armenians, titled Unconditional, Unconditional Election. This reveals that God predetermined, decided, predeterminedly decided to save a sinner and it was made apart from foreseeing anything redeemable in the sinner. Otherwise, salvation would have depended on the sinner and his works and his efforts. Faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel is not the cause of God electing someone. It's the result. Let me say that again. Faith in Christ, obedience to the gospel, is not the cause of God electing us. It's the result of God electing some. Now, many try to get around the doctrine of election by making it out to be conditional election. And this is where we need to understand why these uh, reformers called it unconditional election. In other words, God's election is conditioned by his foreseeing, the words of Ephesians, predestining those who would have faith, putting the condition of salvation and the deciding on his own prerogative and choice. That means it's unconditioned. God's election, listen, is conditioned by his foreseeing those because of his own choice, not foreseeing those who would choose him and so he chose them. That's the way it was taught to me when I was a young man. Some people say that. That's conditional election. God's electing is conditioned on what we do. And, and, and it's not. That's the whole point. Mark Webb helpfully writes, whenever you make God's choice of men to salvation hinge upon what he foresees in man, be it his work, his faith, or his choice, you have effectively undermined the whole concept of salvation by grace alone either salvation depends on God's free choice and good pleasure which is the principle of grace or it depends upon something man himself produces which is the principle of works end quote he's right here's the good news this is this is why this is such good news even though God knew our hopelessness our helpless condition In eternity past, even before Adam sinned, before Adam was created, God decreed and determined a plan for saving alienated sinners. Specifically, God the Father chose a people through his Son who would be saved from his rightly aimed eternal wrath. Many reject this idea of God's choosing and God's electing for a variety of reasons. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, some object against, uh, object against divine sovereign election because they have a suspicion of God's character. 
They think if they believe this, it makes God out to be uh, capricious and mean-spirited and not fair. So they're suspicious of believing this because it makes God out to be something that they don't envision him to be. Another objection is a misunderstanding of man's fallen condition. Why would anyone need God to save if it's up to us to save ourselves, if it's up to us to choose? Others object because they just misunderstand Scripture. And sometimes they actually redefine Scripture. Look up the word predestined in your English or your Greek dictionary and it means to predetermine. That's just what the lexicon says. So they misunderstand or mis interpret scripture and then fourthly some just dislike the idea of God's sovereignty so they reject it out of hand it's not that they don't understand it they just don't like it so they say it must not be true if if it doesn't pass the smell test of their own sensibilities as we've been studying and been taught by Paul in Ephesians 1 3 to 6 God chose God predestined God elected many to be adopted children and saved from his judgment But note this, this section, selection rather, was not based on anything good or meritorious in us, in any believer. God did not look at you and say, I'm gonna choose you over someone else because you're a better choice. True and genuine worship from this doctrine always comes from us stopping to remember, why would God choose me? Why? He shouldn't have unless you truly believe that God should not have chosen you because you know you. You haven't really come to the place of understanding this doctrine. We were dead, helpless, hopeless, enemies of God, sinners. And yet, God chose to adopt us as his children. Now, as we've said over and over, well, uh, how, I mean, that doesn't seem right or fair. I, I'd like to be chosen. How, how can I be chosen? I, I, how can I make the cut? Really simple. <laughs> By believing. If you believe you were chosen, because only those who cho- were chosen will end up believing. I sang it at the campfire. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I love that. But just footnote that when you're singing that song. I have decided to follow Jesus because he chose me first. And you'll be okay. We can make sure, sure Aaron, we're not going to stop singing that song as long as we theologically have that footnote in our mind that our deciding was predecided. No one decides to have faith without being chosen, but if you want to be chosen, have faith. You say, that's contradictory. No, it's not. It's what the Bible teaches. It holds them both in perfect tandem. It's up to God, though. He chooses who he chooses according to the mystery of his grace, the mystery of his mercy, the mystery of his compassion, and the mystery of his love. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, which Paul will quote in Romans 9. God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, your Lord, before you. And listen, I will be gracious. Who are you going to be gracious to, God? I will be gracious. Here's the big explanation. Drum roll. To whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion 
on whom I will show compassion. There is no explanation provided except in the mystery and wonder of his own grace. In his wise person, he decides to choose some. We're not left, though, anywhere in the Scripture with a troubled notion, a, a mysterious Rubik's Cube to figure out, I want to be chosen, so i got to figure this out. What's the secret election handshake? Or, or what's, the, what's the code word to get in? That's not the point. Every place, even in John 6, we looked at it extensively last week, every place where God's sovereignty is accented, somewhere in the context, also is the admonition to believe. To believe. So your responsibility is not to make sure or see if you make the cut in election. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is to believe. And if you believe, if you want to obey, if you believe and receive the gospel, that is evidence that you've been chosen. Romans 9. Would you turn over there just for a second? I want want to remind us. Because this is where Paul gets into the weeds of this. But the deeper he gets into the weeds, the more simple he becomes. Because ultimately, he doesn't explain anything more than Moses did when he quotes God by saying, I will choose who I choose. Be gracious to whom I'm gracious and compassionate and kind to who I'll be compassionate and kind to. Romans chapter 9, this is Paul's discussion of this doctrine. Romans 9, let's pick it up in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice according to his choice, you see that, will stand not because of the works, but because of him who calls. There's a massive amount of theology of the doctrine of election in verse 11. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? In other words, he's saying, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. And the first time you ever heard this doctrine, my suspicion is you, you thought that same thing. Paul knows that that's the question and he gets ahead of it. And he says, wait a minute, you think God's not fair? May it never be. Forget it. Of course he's fair. Of course he's right. For he says to, actually he says it stronger. He doesn't say God's fair. He says God is not unjust. God is not unfair. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I, now he quotes Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but who does it depend on? On God who is the one who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that, in my na- that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. I didn't write that. God did through Paul. 
you will say then to me, then why does he find fault? Who resists his will? It's a really good question. Wait a minute, if God chooses some and not others, if he hardens some and softens others, then how can he in any way say that it's our fault? On the contrary, verse 20, Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What a gracious God. They were all prepared. All of us were prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Salvation glorifies God in which he, called, which he called beforehand for his glory. He prepared beforehand for his glory. He, he made these decisions before the world began. Even us whom he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. This is speaking of us and the, the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen. Now, here's what's so refreshing. You come to the end of Romans 9. God chose some. He didn't choose others. God softens some. He hardens others. And you just end up without a lot of care as a hyper-Calvinist just saying this is all fatalism. Look, if you're still in Romans 9, down at verse at chapter 10, same context. No chapter divisions in the original. Paul talks of his friends, the Jews. Brethren, my, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for what we need. Righteousness to who? To everyone who, what? Believes. Do you see the wonderful balance of God by saying, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God chooses but you have the responsibility and the privilege to act in faith and to believe. Spurgeon said, I, I pray like a Calvinist and I preach like an Arminian. I like that. I don't know who God's elect are. So I scatter the seed and see who will respond. In my salvation presentation, I never say, are you elect? I just say, will you believe? Now, does that totally blow up and negate man's responsibility? No. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, divine sovereignty, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus for their eternal glory. Here's the deal. God's election is unconditional. Salvation is not. Salvation has conditions that we have to meet. We have to believe. We have to repent. 
Sinners must still repent and believe the gospel if they are to be saved. That's the condition for us. God's offer is a gift, but we still must receive it by believing through faith. Now, I understand how that lands with some. And again, we have an abbreviated time this morning, and I'll get to go back and review a little bit of this next week. But if God is the grand chooser, and some aren't chosen, isn't that unfair and unkind? So I want to read you very briefly a context, a situation from our friend Mark Webb. I've read this before, and I, I don't hesitate to tell you this anecdote again. Theologian Pastor Mark Webb says this. A few years ago, while pastoring in Nashville, a member of my church there had a co-worker who belonged to a large Southern Baptist church in the area. This man invited the member and myself over to share our beliefs to a Sunday evening Bible study class that he was teaching. It seems that this class had been studying various cults and this man, upon learning our beliefs, obviously felt that we were qualified for his cult of the week class because they were Calvinistic. (laughs) I began the session by explaining that the truths we held were hardly cultish and were, in fact, the very truths in which the Southern Baptists themselves held in their early days. After having a brief survey of the doctrines of grace, I asked for questions. One lady in particular was troubled. She said, This is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved and receiving only the elect. Webb says, I answered in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in that door. And God says to various ones, yes, you can come, but not you. Or you, and yes, you, but not you. And not you, and yes, you. The situation is hardly like this. God, rather, stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men without exception are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over here and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts and making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there but it keeps a whole multitude of folks out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place. Hell would be bursting at the seams. If you perish in hell, he says, blame yourself as it's entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, blame God. It's entirely his fault. To him alone belongs praise, all praise and glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. I'm very aware how troubling that doctrine can land and be. It did on me. I I had almost an emotional breakdown my first semester of seminary studying this. And it wasn't because I didn't understand it. It was because I didn't like it. 
and wouldn't accept it. But the more I began to understand how lost and dead I really am, was, it began to be a sweet doctrine, a refreshing, a saving doctrine, a hopeful doctrine. And I trust it is for you. If you don't know Christ, it's not to see if you've been predetermined to go to hell. It lands in your lap to believe that Christ died for your sins and offers you salvation from yourself and from all his judgment in hell. If you'll believe that, he'll receive you. And you'll prove that you're chosen.